You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Just how important is the gospel? Is it really worth splitting churches or leaving churches or dividing people over? Is it worth drawing lines in the sand and saying some of us are on this side and some of us are on the other side? So what if one particular group of people or a church or a pastor happens to think that you have to work to keep your salvation once you're saved? Can't we just overlook that and say, well, we're still brothers in the Lord, we'll still do ministry and fellowship with each other, and we'll just ignore our petty, insignificant, theological idiosyncrasies just so we can demonstrate the love and the unity and the peace that should be in the body of Christ. So what that one particular church or one particular pastor or one particular group of people happens to think that you need to be baptized in order to be saved? that Jesus and His death and His resurrection are not enough. Can't we just overlook that? Can't we just lay aside our petty theological disagreements and all of us get together and demonstrate the love and the unity and the peace which should mark the body of Christ? So what if one particular group happens to believe that you need to be circumcised in order to be saved? Can't we just overlook that? Pretend that we can all get together around the person of Jesus and ignore our petty theological differences in order to demonstrate love and unity and peace which should mark the body of Christ? What do you think Paul's answer to that question would be? I know what Paul's answer to that question would be. I once had a local pastor tell me that there are more than one gospel. There's more than one gospel in the New Testament. He wasn't talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I know that. There are four gospels. He meant message by which you can be saved. There's more than one gospel in the New Testament, he said, in front of ten witnesses. He said James had a gospel of works, and Paul had a gospel of grace, and Jesus had a gospel of the kingdom. And you could be saved by any one of those three gospels. Well, who are you to quibble with that? How do you argue against that? Now laying aside the fact that that is such a patent, abusive misrepresentation of the message and the ministry of both Jesus And James, I guess I am to take from that, that you can preach or teach anything you want, just label it gospel, and it'll save people. Is that true? What if I told you that if you do not bungee jump, you cannot be saved? You must believe in Christ and bungee jump. And if you do not bungee jump, you cannot be saved. Now you're laughing and you're smirking and you're smiling because you're saying, Jim... That is such a patent abuse of the gospel of grace. You are so obviously twisting Scripture and adding something to the gospel. Well, why is it so bad to add bungee jumping to the gospel, but it's acceptable to add Sabbath keeping to the gospel? Why is it so intolerable to add bungee jumping to the gospel, but to accept somebody else's addition of baptism, or circumcision, or penance, or purgatory, or mass, or you fill in the blank. Why is one intolerable and the other is tolerable? Friends, here's what I want you to nail down in your mind. 
And if you leave here with nothing else, leave here with this. It is not a matter of what you add to the Gospel. It is a matter that you add to the Gospel. It's not what you add to the Gospel that strips it of its power to save and nullifies its effectiveness. It's that you add to the Gospel that strips it of its power to save and nullifies it of its effectiveness. It does not matter if you add baptism or circumcision or Sabbath keeping or bungee jumping. Now, I agree with that pastor in this respect. There are different Gospels in the New Testament. There are what Paul refers to as other Gospels. And then there is the Gospel of God's grace. Now, one of those has the power to save. One of those is the power of God unto salvation. It is the preaching and the proclamation of the Gospel message that saves. And it is the Gospel of God's grace that saves. All of the other Gospels, the Gospel of Baptism, the Circumcision Gospel, the Bungee Jumping Gospel, all of those Gospels serve to do only one thing, and that is to damn their hearers and their adherents to eternal perdition. Is it really that big of a deal? Friends, I think Paul thought that it was that big of a deal. For when certain men came down from James, Acts chapter 15, verse 1, they began to teach the brethren that unless you're circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So what did Paul do? Paul said, well, I may not personally adhere to that. I may not personally agree to that. But I can overlook our theological differences and our little petty disagreements and discrepancies so that we might demonstrate the love and the unity and the peace which should mark the body of Christ. Forget it. Paul didn't do that. What did Paul do? Verse 2, he had great debate and dissension with them. He put his mark on those false teachers and he said, we're going to discuss this. And it was a heated debate and a great dissension. You mean Paul split the body of Christ over that issue? You bet he did. Oh my! Hey listen, Paul understood this. You don't have unity unless you agree on that issue. What must I do to be saved? That's the foundational point of our unity. And if you're going to compromise on that, you have no unity. And all of your displays of love and unity and coming together and being together, it's all just peripheral nonsense. If you cannot agree to the answer of this question, what must I do to be saved? And so when certain men came down from James and they began teaching the brethren, you have to be circumcised in order, according to the custom of Moses or you cannot be saved. First thing Paul did, he had great debate and dissension with them. There's a second thing that he did. Galatians chapter 2. He called Peter on the carpet. Publicly, in front of others. He said, Peter, you're being a hypocrite. Because when the men from James weren't there, Peter ate with all the Gentile Christians. Had his ham sandwiches and enjoyed his pork chops with all of the Gentile believers in Antioch. But then when certain men came down, they started to put pressure saying you must be circumcised. Unless these Gentiles who have never been circumcised, they can't be saved. They're still unclean in God's sight. And so Peter began to not compromise his Gospel, but compromise his principles. And he began to sort of make concessions to those who were compromising. And he started to withdraw from the believers in Antioch when the men from James came down. And Paul said, Peter, you're being a hypocrite. You're preaching one Gospel and you're living another. You're preaching that a man is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But you're living the Gospel that says 
You have to be circumcised to be saved. The third thing that Paul did, and by the way, let me point out there, it's not only, it is not only appropriate to divide from and to debate with and to split away from those who pollute the gospel. It is also appropriate to confront those who make concessions with those who pollute the gospel. You compromise, it's appropriate to be confronted for your compromise. Third thing Paul did is he wrote the book of Galatians. You fools, he said. Who has bewitched you? I marvel, I'm amazed that you're turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and they want to pervert the gospel of Christ. If we, or an angel from heaven, preach to you any other gospel than the one we've preached, let him be damned. I said before, I'll say again, if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any gospel to you than the one that you have received, let him be damned. Anathema. I think Paul took that kind of seriously, don't you? It was a serious issue. And I'm sure there were appeasers in Paul's day who said, Paul, this is not worth splitting over. This is not worth dividing over. This is just their own little quirky theological distinction. We should just accept it and move on. And let's not ruffle the waters or divide the body of Christ over this. Friends, if Paul hadn't, the gospel would have been lost in 49 A.D. But instead, Paul had great debate and dissension. And then the believers in Antioch said, Paul, you and Barnabas go up to Jerusalem and you talk to James and you talk to the other apostles and you meet there and you discuss this thing. You hammer it out and bring back to us what they say. So Paul did that. That's what we looked at last week. The disagreement that caused or brought to the surface this Jerusalem council which is in Acts chapter 15. We're going to look this morning at the discussion that was held. So we understand what the issue is. The issue is this. Must a Gentile Christian become circumcised in order to be saved? Or must a Gentile Christian become circumcised once they are saved for their sanctification? In other words, one, one of the questions has to do with salvation. The other has to do with sanctification. Must I be circumcised to receive salvation? I can't be, I can't be saved without it. Or, now that I am saved... In order for me to be sanctified, do I have to be circumcised? That's the two questions. The Jerusalem Council is going to address both of those issues. So Acts chapter 15, we're going to pick it up at verse 6, and we're going to look this morning, we're not going to get all the way through the discussion that was held at the Jerusalem Council, but we're going to get a shot in at covering Paul's testimony and Peter's testimony. Acts chapter 15, verse 6, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And this is the matter. Must a Gentile Christian be circumcised in order to be saved or once he is saved? They came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, and then he gives us Peter's address. Verse 7, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Peter and Paul are the two testimonies at the Jerusalem Council that we're going to look at. 
They came together, the apostles, the elders in Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas are there, the delegation from Antioch, and they meet together for a period of time. I don't think that this went quickly. I think that this took place over probably several days, at at the minimum several hours of discussion and prayer and debating. And they discussed these things and they debated these issues. And each side had their point. You had the Pharisees and the Judaizers on one side who were saying, we have to add circumcision and observing the law of Moses to the requirements of the new covenant. And then you had on the other side of the aisle Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James who were saying, no, we cannot accept any kind of human merit or works in the equation whatsoever. And so you had people on both sides who were arguing their positions vehemently and passionately. Now, if you think that this was just a a discussion over a cup of tea, I don't think you understand Paul's passion about this. Just having the Apostle Paul in the room would kick the heat up quite a few degrees. Paul felt passionately. Before the Jerusalem Council, he already wrote the letter to the Galatians. And friends, if you want an idea with which of the, of the passion with which Paul addressed these issues, you just have to read Galatians. You fools, who bewitched you? Who led you astray? And he just, almost in a sarcastic tone at times, he's, he's giving these stinging rejoinders to the Galatians. I can't believe you are so foolish to abandon Christ so soon. He just got back from his missionary journey. And so Paul is there. And he's debating it. And it's heated. And you can imagine that there would be times when tempers would flare and passion gets involved. Friends, there are times when in the pursuit of truth and in the defense of truth, you have to be passionate. It doesn't mean that you're not gracious. It doesn't mean that you're not kind-hearted or loving. It means that it burns within your soul. And there's fire in your belly and lava in your bones. And it has to come out. And you have to speak the truth. And you have to be passionate about it. Paul was such a man. He'd already debated them in Antioch. And he came to Jerusalem. He knew what the arguments were. And when they sat down and he gave his testimony, the Pharisees stood up and said, hey, once they're saved, we have to circumcise them. And then there was this heated debate. Now Luke doesn't tell us everything that was said because that would probably fill a volume or two if he gave us a chronicle of everything that was said at this in the back and forth. In fact, it's interesting to me that Luke doesn't even record the arguments that the Judaizers and the Pharisees were using. Why were they saying this? What possible position were they coming from? What was going on in their minds that they had the audacity and the arrogance to confront the Apostle Paul? And doesn't that strike you as arrogant, by the way? To have the Apostle Paul in your church service to stand up and give a missionary report and then for you to call him on the carpet and say, look, I disagree with your theology, and I disagree with your philosophy of ministry. You've got it wrong, Paul. Friends, that is such pride and arrogance, it's almost staggering. That's what happened in verse 5. Happened in verse 1, when some people dared to come down from Jerusalem into Antioch to correct Paul's theology. Started teaching the brethren, well, you have to be circumcised now. Come down to correct the theology. In the church of the Apostle Paul, nonetheless. That is arrogance. What sparked that kind of arrogance? Luke doesn't tell us what the, why they were arguing or how they were arguing or what types of arguments they were using, but I can tell you some of the things that would have concerned the Pharisees. Let me give you, let's, let's try and put ourselves in the mindset for just a second of the opposition. For a Pharisee, Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament law. All of the feasts, all of the sacrifices, all of the ceremonies, all of the rituals, all of the temple activity, everything foreshadowed Christ. Everything looked ahead to Him. So now a Pharisee, having trusted in Christ, because verse 5 tells us they were believing Pharisees, 
the Pharisees, having trusted in Christ, now would be looking at the law in a whole new way. For them, their Lord was the crowning jewel, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament law. How can we set that aside? How can you just cast that out the door and ignore it like it has no implications for believers? And now they have the Holy Spirit. And so with the Holy Spirit, now they have this new capacity to be righteous. And boy, they would be even more committed to the law. Even more in love with the law. Unthinkable that they could just cast that aside. But second, they would argue like this. And now if I were a Pharisee and I was standing in the Jerusalem Council, here's what I would say. Paul, don't you agree that circumcision is the mark of the people of God, the sign of the covenant of God? Yeah. What proof do you have in the Old Testament, in the Scriptures which are before us, because none of the New Testament has been written yet except the book of Galatians, what proof do you have in the Old Testament that there would come a time when circumcision would not be the sign of the Old Covenant, of the covenant? How would you answer that? That's what they would want to know. No, I'm not going to give you the answer to that. Third, there was ethical concerns. Paul has won all of these pagan, Gentile unbelievers to the Lord. And now the concern is this. They're coming into the church and they're going to bring their paganism, their pagan morals, their pagan idolatry, and their pagan ethics right into the church. And we should be a holy people of God. And if we don't have something external, if we don't have some measure of righteousness, something to impose upon these people to make them holy and to make them righteous, they're going to start living unholy lives right in the midst of the church. All their immorality and their infidelity and their idolatry, everything will be brought right into the church. We must command them to observe the law of Moses. For a Jew, the law was the outward motivation and the outward measure of just how righteous he was in the sight of God. He could look at the law and look at his life and say, this is what I should be aspiring to, and here is how I measure up. And if we don't give the law to the Gentiles and tell them this is what holiness is, how can you ever expect them to be holy? A Jew had to have the law to understand what holiness is. How can you expect a Gentile to live holy without the same law? Good question, isn't it? And then there's just that nationalistic pride. They had eat, eat, uh, they had ate and slept and drank and lived and breathed the law all their lives. It is hard for us to imagine the colossal change of mind that it would require for a Pharisee, which Paul was one, by the way, for a Pharisee to completely abandon all of that and to rest solely in Christ. See, here was their problem. They had one foot in the law of Moses and they had one foot in the grace of Christ. And the ground was starting to separate between the two, and now they're going to have to make a decision. We've got to leap one way or the other. They're either going to jump back into the law and hope that the Old Testament and all of its fulfillment is going to make them righteous in the sight of God, or they're going to have to jump over here and put both feet in the grace of Christ and say we'll trust in faith alone, in grace alone, and Christ alone. That's the choice they've got to make. And I think Paul's forcing them to make that choice in the Jerusalem Council. So that's where they're coming from. Luke doesn't tell us any of that, but we know what a Pharisee is. We know how they think, and so we can put ourselves in their shoes and understand why it is that they're bringing this issue up. But Luke does tell us about Paul's testimony, or sorry, Peter's testimony first, and Paul's testimony. Each of them give a speech or a presentation to the council by the time we get to Acts chapter 15, verse 12. And so we'll look at what it is. First of all, Peter's testimony. Peter testified that the gospel of grace was demonstrated in Cornelius. That's the gist of Peter's whole argument. Look what he says in verse 7. Peter stood up and he said to them, 
Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. What's he talking about? In the early days, God chose from amongst the apostles one of us, and it was me, and by my mouth the Gentiles heard the gospel. What incident is Peter talking about? He is talking about Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. God made the choice. You remember the story? Now all Peter has to do is mention it, and all of the other apostles and the elders in Jerusalem would be fully up to speed with what he's talking about, because Peter's already given them the whole story. God made the choice. He chose Peter, and on that rooftop he gave Peter the vision with the animals, and Peter learned during that vision that God doesn't show partiality to any man. Clean and unclean, those distinctions no longer exist. Circumcised, uncircumcised, those distinctions no longer exist. Jew, Gentile, forget about it. No more distinctions. No partiality. And then God chose to prepare Cornelius' heart. He saw the angel and said, send for Peter. So he sent for Peter. And just as soon as Peter gets done with the vision, he comes down from the house and at the gate there's a couple men there and they're saying, you need to come with us. And the Spirit spoke to Peter and said, go with them. And so Peter got up and he walked into the house of this Gentile and in the middle of his gospel presentation, Cornelius believes, receives the Spirit of God and begins to speak in tongues. Everything is hunky-dory great until the apostles back in Jerusalem hear about the whole episode. And then when Peter comes back in to Jerusalem, the apostles call him on the carpet. You were fraternizing with uncircumcised Gentiles. You went in and ate with them. And Peter says, whoa, 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 whoa. Tells him the whole story. And then at the very end, he says, who am I to stand in God's way? God gave them the Spirit the same as he did to us. Who am I to say, no, Lord, you can't do that? So then the rest of the apostles said, well, then, God has granted also to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. Imagine that. Gentiles saved. Now, as Peter relays this whole story, the apostles and the elders, they're familiar with this because they've walked through all of this with Peter. And what Peter is doing is he's saying there was a time when God chose me by my mouth, not by Paul's. Let's just forget about Paul for a second. By my mouth, the Gentiles heard the word and they believed. And then Peter indicates three sort of significant things about Cornelius. First of all, he says that Cornelius believed the word of the gospel. He heard the word of the gospel and he believed. In mid-sentence. Peter's explaining it to him. Judgment and justice to come and God's choice of the Messiah through us. And, and the Messiah came and He died and He rose again so that if you place your faith in Him, you'll be saved. As soon as they hear enough to believe, Cornelius and his household, they believe. And they receive the Spirit. Right in the middle of Peter's Gospel presentation, they have the audacity to believe. Now, <clears throat> here's the dirty little secret. Were they circumcised? No. Cornelius believed before he was circumcised. Cornelius never got circumcised. And just in case you're wondering the significance of that event, Cornelius believed and received the Spirit before he was baptized too. Before he was baptized. Then Peter says, Cornelius not only believed, but he, but, and God, verse 8, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. You know what he's referring to? The gift of tongues. Cornelius spoke in tongues, and Peter and those who were with him heard that, and they said that's the same Spirit, the same salvation, the same manifestation of the Spirit that happened to us on the day of Pentecost. He's genuinely saved. Peter and the rest of the apostles could only come to one conclusion. Cornelius was saved. The same gospel, the same faith, the same salvation, and the same sealing of the Spirit, just as the apostles had. And so they have to accept him into membership in the church and recognize him as a believer. Was he circumcised yet? No. Believed without circumcision? Received the Spirit without circumcision? 
Further, Peter says, God cleansed his heart by faith. Without circumcision? Again, without circumcision. Now Peter's going to turn up the heat on those who are there a little bit. Look at chapter 15, verse 9. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Why do you put God to the test? Well, what do you mean put God to the test, Peter? We're not putting God to the test. Yes, you are. God has already revealed His will in the incident with Cornelius. And now you have the audacity to require of Gentiles what God never required of Gentiles. You're testing Him. They had enough understanding of what had happened historically of the new covenant and of Jesus' role that they had no reason to require of Gentiles circumcision. You're testing God, Peter says, by placing upon the neck of new believers a yoke which neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. A yoke is an accurate and adequate term for the Old Testament law, don't you think? When somebody became a, a, a convert to Judaism and they took about themselves or upon themselves the responsibility of keeping the Old Testament law, they were said to be taking up the yoke of the kingdom. That was the phrase that they used. Peter says, we weren't able to bear that yoke. It was burdensome. It was onerous. You know why the law was burdensome? Because every attempt to keep it resulted in what? Failure. They knew they couldn't keep the law. The law didn't provide them with forgiveness. It just showed them that they needed forgiveness. The law didn't provide them with the righteousness that they needed. It just demonstrated how unrighteous they were. It didn't make them holy. It only demonstrated how unholy they were and how holy God was. And the law could never save anybody. A man's not justified by the law. Paul says if a law was given that could have brought life, righteousness would have come by the law. But no law can give life. Only grace can give life. And so it was onerous and burdensome because every attempt to fulfill the law resulted in failure. And Peter says, why do you place upon their neck a yoke that you're glad to be free of? Does that make sense? Well, we're glad to not have that yoke anymore. Let's pick it up and put it on the Gentiles. What didn't work for the Jews is not going to work for the Gentiles. If the law cannot bring righteousness, if it can't make you holy, if it can't forgive your sins, and if it can't make you free, why in the world would you put that on a Gentile? Does that make sense? That's what Peter says. So you're testing God by placing upon their neck a yoke that you could not bear. Verse 11, But we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. This is only a couple weeks, maybe a couple months removed from Paul's confrontation of Peter in Antioch. Look at the change of face. We believe that we are justified or declared righteous in the sight of God solely on the basis of faith through grace, just as the Gentiles are. Same salvation, same level playing field, same grace, same faith, all of it is the same. No distinctions, Peter says. That is what we must concur. We are saved by grace. And he bases a conclusion on two things. What the law could not do them for them and what God did to Cornelius. Exhibit A, Cornelius. There was a man that was saved, believed, received the Spirit without circumcision, and also the law, Exhibit B. You know what the law cannot do. The law cannot do what you want it to do for Gentiles. It lacks the ability to give life or to make righteous or to make holy, so don't put it on them. Keep it off of them. So we must conclude that a man is saved by grace. 
That's a fitting way for Peter to exit the book of Acts, isn't it? This is the last we hear from Peter. The last we read of Peter in the book of Acts. As far as Luke is concerned, Peter's closing act and his closing statement is the legitimization of the Gentile gospel ministry and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Peter would have played well out in the Reformation day. He would have. So this is the last we see of Peter, and it is a statement about the grace of God through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, Paul. Peter testified that the gospel of grace was demonstrated in Cornelius. Now, Paul's testimony, verse 12. Paul testifies that the gospel of grace was authenticated by signs. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, what in the world does that have to do with the discussion of the day? Paul, don't you understand we're talking about grace? We're talking about the nature of the gospel. We're talking about the message of the gospel. Circumcision is the issue, Paul. Why are you talking about signs? Why are you talking about miracles? Don't you understand what we've come here to discuss? We're discussing whether circumcision is necessary for salvation, and you waste your time in front of the council by talking about the signs and the wonders that you've been doing. So you struck Elimus blind. So you healed a man in Lystra. So you performed signs in Iconium. What does that have to do with the discussion? Any ideas? Absolutely nothing unless... Signs and wonders in the New Testament and in the book of Acts are for the purpose of authenticating the message. It is only understanding that that Paul's testimony makes any sense in front of the council. Here's how it breaks down. Whose gospel was on trial in Acts chapter 15? Paul's gospel. The one he preached among the Gentiles. Now what was Paul's gospel? Acts chapter 13, verse 38 and 39 in the Pisidian Antioch synagogue, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore let it be known to you that forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you through Christ. And through Him you are forgiven and freed from all things that you could not be freed from under the law of Moses. This is Paul's Gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Period. No baptism, no circumcision, no Old Testament law, no feasts, no sacrifices, nothing added, no Sabbath keeping. Believe. Place your faith in Christ and Christ alone. Because God justifies men apart from the law, having nothing to do with the law. It's on the basis of faith. It's by grace through Christ alone and nothing else. That's His Gospel. So why is He talking about miracles? Chapter 14, verse 3. The Lord testified to the word of His grace by granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. This was the mark of authenticity upon Paul's Gospel. Remember I told you back in chapter 14, verse 3, that if you could attach two words to the idea of signs and wonders in the New Testament, you'd have it down. One of them is apostle, because signs were done by the hands of the apostles and those closely associated with them, like Barnabas. And second, authenticate. Signs serve to authenticate the message. What's on trial? The message is on trial. That's why Paul stands up and he says, here are the signs and the wonders that God did through us. Because Paul understands, and everybody there understood, that God does not authenticate the message and the teaching of false teachers. God will not authenticate error by granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. And so Paul's essentially saying this, I performed the signs of a true apostle among you, and God has borne witness to my gospel by granting that signs and wonders happen by my hands. 
So you want to know whose gospel is the true gospel? I perform signs and wonders. Now, if you're sitting in the Jerusalem Council and you have all the Judaizers over here, and they're saying it's Jesus plus Moses, faith plus works, grace plus law. Then you've got Paul and Peter and Barnabas on the other side, and they're saying it's faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. Who are you going to believe? Who do you believe? i got to go with the guy whose gospel has been authenticated by the ability to perform signs and wonders. That's who I'm going to go with. That's what Paul's saying. Here's my gospel. If it were false, I wouldn't have the ability to do these things. I'm able to perform signs and wonders, and God has thus, thus stamped my gospel with His seal of authenticity. God has testified to the truthfulness of my message by granting me the ability to perform signs and wonders. That's Paul's testimony. So just how important is the gospel? Is it worth splitting things up over? Is it worth making waves over? Friends, this is more than just a tempest in a teapot in Acts chapter 15. This is the focal point of church history as far as the gospel of grace is concerned in the New Testament. This is the focal point. We had uh, an Arowana fun fair night. We give the gospel presentation out to everybody who comes, parents. And for those of you who were there, you know what happened. We had a bubblegum jar. We filled it up with little pieces of bubblegum. And then the kids had to guess how many pieces of bubblegum were in this one-gallon jar. And the winner of the bubblegum jar, the person who was closest, won all of the bubblegum and got to take the jar home. And I was getting up to announce who the winner of this is, and I thought, I'll work this into my gospel presentation. So the gospel presentation that I delivered started out with an explanation that in order to win the bubblegum, you only have to be closest. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be spot on. You don't even have to be within a certain parameter. You just have to be close. You can be a million off. You can be far away from the actual number. But you just have to be closer than anybody else, and you get the prize. And then I likened that to heaven. Do you know what the requirements are for heaven, I said? And it's a rhetorical question intended for people to realize you have to be perfect to get to heaven. And none of us are perfect. That's why we need a Savior. That's why grace is necessary. That's the premise and that's where I was going. So I made the little explanation. I said, now, this is kind of like the requirements to get into heaven. Do you know what the requirements to get into heaven are? And one little boy in the middle of the the room there raised his hand. And if you were there, you know what he said. Be baptized. You probably couldn't tell it by watching me, but inside my heart sunk. And I just got this sick feeling in my stomach. I know where this kid goes. It's church. And I know what he's taught. And immediately I thought in my mind, what is he trusting in for his salvation? What is it? Baptism. Baptism going to save you? Circumcision going to save you? Yet he's grown up learning a gospel that teaches him this is what you must do to be saved. So what is he really trusting in? Christ and Christ alone? No, it's baptism. That's tragic, friends. you got to ask yourself, what are you trusting in for salvation? Faith plus what? Works or, or grace plus what? Christ plus who? You? Or is it faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone? Is the gospel really that big of a deal? I submit to you that it is. It's far bigger than we sometimes make it out to be. It's far more serious issue than we take it as. We need to take it more seriously. And more importantly, you need to give no rest to your eyes until you can say with the hymn writer, my faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. 
I'll trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace in Christ. Thank you that Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James and the men in the early church had the courage and the tenacity to stand up and to fight for truth. We pray that you would grant to us that same courage, that same grace, and the ability and the willingness to love your truth ahead of all other things. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.